today on Fuzzy Logic. We are having our Christmas special. That's right. It's the 22nd of December. So we're delving into the science behind Christmas and what's going on with your food, your presents and uh, how you might be feeling. All that coming up today on your Christmassy Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and a very Merry Christmas to you all. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to be with you in the studio for this Sunday's episode of Fuzzy Logic, our uh, Christmas special. That's right, it's the 22nd of December. What does that leave us? One, two, three more sleeps until the big guy comes and drops off some presents, and uh, we have our Christmas day. And as such, I thought maybe it's time to share some of the science of Christmas and what's going on around us and I've tried to uh, pick up a few news stories and a bit of new research and that sort of thing but uh, also hopefully we can give you a bit of understanding about uh, what's going on in the world around us and why we feel the way we do during this period. Uh, It's a a pretty special period at the moment. uh, Here in Canberra we are getting the uh, smoke coming through from all those bushfires around us and thoughts go out to all those who are having to uh, uh, either evacuate, move out, or having to um, recover after the fires have passed through and big thoughts to the firefighters there who are uh, helping look after us and uh, our environment and all that sort of thing. I'm not going to dive too far into those stories today around the uh, climate change and the smoke and all that sort of thing, uh, but there is certainly a lot to be looked at, and I feel like next year we might uh, reflect on all of that and have a think about what it really means with this huge fire season. But uh, for this Sunday, I think it's time to take a look at Christmas. And I, look, I am going to start in the negative. I like Christmas. I think it's a real positive uh, time of the year But I think for some people, Christmas can be a bit much. It can be a bit overwhelming um, and uh, it can just be uh, stressful. Uh, You know, anything but a Merry Christmas for some people. Uh, And so I thought I'd look at why Christmas of all times, which is supposed to be that happy time, can be a bit of a stress and uh, there's a few different reasons uh, that it does happen. One of them is the great expectations that we have around Christmas. You know, we always see those picture-perfect Christmas dinner tables and the perfect Christmas tree and everything is just perfect and lovely. But if we're honest with each other, nothing's ever perfect, is it? And in fact, you know, life's just too messy to guarantee that uh, the perfect things are happening, uh, and uh, but we still expect it, and and we, we contribute to this each other uh, ourselves through our posts on social media and that sort of thing, where we are posting a curated version of our 
life, but it's all part of our human tendency. In fact, we have a human tendency to expect the best, and that's a result of our optimism bias, something that's kind of inherent in our brains. Uh, so this optimism bias coupled with the planning fallacy, another thing uh, where we repeatedly underestimate how much time and effort tasks will take despite previous experiences, kind of leads to many people expecting a fun, pleasant, relaxing Christmas but it ends up with a messy, chaotic, stressful one. And it, and it kind of makes a lot of sense there. You know, we're overly optimistic about things. We expect it to take less time than it will. And uh, suddenly it's one o'clock and we still don't have the turkey on the table. And uh, so that's that's just our brain not really cooperating there. Uh the other side of things, of course, is expectations and uh, and then suddenly dismissing those expectations. That can cause a lot of stress, and that's just at the personal level. Uh, of course, social media in there as well, extra pressure to look better, to do better, to maintain your status is another cause of stress. So, you know, there's huge causes of stress there, plus our own brain's expectation to not monitor them means that it becomes a stressful time. Now, the other side of things, of course, is that Christmas is a time for families. And if you're lucky enough to still be a part of one, you might be celebrating with uh, your parents, with your children, with your nieces, nephews, or maybe with the urban family, your friends who you've decided to pick as your family. And look, urban family often works quite well. Uh, but sometimes your family support and involvement can be uh, important to your well-being. They can support you, but sometimes in the short term, family can be a source of stress. Now, the obvious example is uh, political or cultural clashes caused by generational or even uh, geographical differences, the family who lives in the country compared to that in the city. And that can result in tense atmospheres or furious rows over the dinner table, particularly if you try to start up conversations around polarising topics such as climate change, Brexit, Donald Trump. The thing is, though... Even when you do get along with your family, there's no obvious source of disagreement or even conflict. A prolonged period in close quarters with a lot of your family can still be stressful. Because, you know, there's the relative lack of privacy that comes when you've got a house full of people. That's a known cause of stress. And there's also the loss of control as everyone is chipping in. Uh, or in your face, even if they've got 100% good intentions, perceived loss of control is another big stressor on us as people. And then finally, there's that weird aspect of regression. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I go back to Adelaide for Christmas, which I'm not doing this year, but I, I did last year and I'll do again next year, uh, you return to your childhood home and you stay with your parents and with your siblings around and your brain kind of resets and reverts to the schemas that governed your behaviour and thinking when you were back in that context. So basically, you're diving back into teenage brain. Trouble is, though, you're not a teenager anymore, often with your own partner and children. So now you've got those competing perspectives in your head. You've got to be the responsible adult, but then you've got the uh, childlike behaviours around your parents. Causes confusion, uncertainty, another source of stress around Christmas time. Finally... Uh the other side of things at Christmas, what do we do at Christmas besides sharing presents and sharing time with family? We eat, drink and be merry. But uh, those sorts of things might not be the best things for us. 
High calorie foods can reduce feelings of stress. So when you're eating the bad foods, that does reduce the stress. And the same thing for alcohol. But in both cases, it's a short-term fix. Our bodies uh, don't like it in the long term. And they actually seem to store more fat when we're stressed. And alcohol consumption can quickly cross the line from pleasantly tipsy to not pleasant at all, uh, leaving us bloated, hungover, sad, basically in a worse state than when we started before Christmas. And so all of that just adds up to more stress. So overall, look, it's not to say that Christmas is by default a hard and stressful time. It can be brilliant providing everything, the good things that we expect. But it's certainly important to recognise that there are many things out there that are contributing to make it more stressful. And uh, you've got to actually put in some effort and investment because if you ignore it, it'll just make things more stressful in the long run. And uh, so, look... That's a really important thing. And I feel like I should say at this point, if you are affected over the Christmas period and uh, you feel stressed uh, through some of those things, like I mentioned above or anything else, there are places you can turn to uh, in Australia. Give Lifeline a call on 131114. That's Lifeline 131114. And uh, they'll be able to chat to you throughout that period and help reduce that stress. So, yes, there are a lot of stress-contributing factors on Christmas Day, but uh, in the lead-up to Christmas, there's certainly plenty of stress too. There's uh, finding the right Christmas present, and before you even get that Christmas present, it's finding the park at the shopping centre so you can actually go in and collect it. And... uh, Look, if you haven't done your shopping yet, uh, I presume you're going to be out today. I parked in Canberra Centre this morning. It wasn't too bad when I got in just before 11. Uh, I managed to get a park. And luckily at Canberra Centre and a few of our car parks across Canberra, we have those green light, red light system and some numbers. So like I drove in and straight away I saw there weren't going to be enough parks on that level. So I went down to the basement. But uh At those car parks where you don't have those green and red lights, what are you supposed to do? What's the the best tactics to go about it? Is there a a scientific way we can look at this? Well, yes, there is. Uh, Some... Australian scientists and mathematicians have done uh, have shared their secrets to finding the best park. And uh, to simplify things, for the example, I'm going to look at a big single-storey car park uh, with the destination, the shopping centre, at one end of that big rectangle. Now, look, there's a few options you can do here. You can sit in an aisle and wait And this uh, tactic came from Michael Rose, a mathematician and science communicator at Ansto in Sydney. Because basically, if you sit in an aisle and wait, if you imagine there's 30 car parks on that aisle, 30 parked cars, 15 on each side. Now, shoppers spend an average of about three hours buying Christmas presents. That's pretty generous, but that sounds about right. So if each of those shoppers spends three hours, on average, one should emerge and drive away every six minutes. As long as stores are churning through the customers, people are finding what they need, you can count on a steady stream of people departing that shopping centre. So, you know, just sit around and wait for six minutes and you'll be right. But in reality, just sitting in your car and blocking a whole row of the car park is probably not going to win you any friends, uh, particularly if the car park is busy. Uh, So unless you want to sit there and hear all that honking, you've probably got to move around. So uh, what's the best way to move around? Well, look, the, the 
best strategy is to head to the corner of the car park farthest from the shopping centre. And this is according to a uh, Sarah Bellet, a Monash University master's student who does mathematical modelling. Uh, head as far away as possible uh, because then uh, you're more likely to find parks there where people don't want to walk as far. But if you don't fancy walking too far between your car and the shops, there are ways to maximise those chances of getting the closest spot. And you can actually take the lead here from computer search. Uh, use a linear search uh, to find uh, what's going on. Uh, so in a computer, if you're looking for the number one in rows and rows of digits, places the rows end to end, so you're left with one long line of digits, then it checks the first digit. If it's not a one, it moves to the next, and so on and so on and so on, until you just move down. So what's that in terms of car parking? You check the first aisle. No parks available, go down the second aisle, then to the third, fourth, etc., etc. Now, methodically sorting uh, might be uh, a better way, and it's probably better than randomly driving around, but might actually not be the fastest way to find a car park. Uh, a skip a few strategy inspired by other computer search techniques might actually land you a space faster than that linear approach. So uh, this assumes that there's probably more free spaces towards the back of the car park. So if you start by driving down the aisle closest to the shopping centre, aisle number one, then skip the second aisle, try the third. Then skip a couple, try the sixth. Then the 11th. And uh, what this means is, well, A, you're not stuck beside the same line of people, and uh, B, uh, you kind of got that... uh, randomness going in there look it's not a fail safe method you could get to the very back of the car park without finding a spot but uh, you then just methodically wind your way back with the linear search from there so look probably my the recommendations that we seem to be having here is uh, be patient there's probably someone coming out uh, every few minutes from that shop but start away from the shopping centre door and move your way towards it and uh, you're probably more likely to find a park. And the most important thing of all is don't forget your manners. In uh, a 1997 study in the US, it looked at how quickly people drove out of their parking space while someone waited to take their spot, sitting there with the indicator on just waiting. And what these researchers found was that uh, when the uh, person who was waiting gave this person a little beep on their horn, the departing driver took longer to vacate the space. So if you come across someone loading up their car, be nice, sit there, wait patiently, give them a smile, and don't toot that horn because the ruder you are, the longer they're going to take. So there you go. Indeed, looking at uh, buying those presents late, just chill in the car park is the advice. Now, speaking of presents, before I throw to a song, I just wanted to cover one more present-based story. Uh, And that is an argument that happens a little in my place with my wife and I, and this is the best way to wrap presents. Now, she isn't the world's best rapper, Uh, But she admits this, I'm not being controversial on air, Uh, and quite often uh, I will be delegated the task of wrapping presents, especially when it's my family. Uh, I I am the one who's wrapping it there. Uh, I tend to be a bit more plain with my wrapping technique, but I'm always very crisp, clean, uh, well-wrapped presents. But... uh, There's a question, though. Is it better to have a well-wrapped present 
or one that's a bit sloppy you know not 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 quite perfect um but just you know try to wrap as best they can well some scientists uh, at the university of nevada uh, recently published some work in the journal of consumer psychology and they conduct an experiment to explore what gift wrapping actually does to how you perceive a present Now, in their first experiment, they got 180 university students and they recruited them to come to a behavioural lab in uh, Miami to participate in a research study. Now, the research study was described as an extra credit exercise and upon arrival, each student was given an actual gift as a token of appreciation for their participation. Now, the gift was a coffee mug uh, with the logo of one of two basketball teams, the local Miami Heat or Arrival, Orlando Magic. And uh, those mugs were handed out at random. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the scientists doing this study actually knew that every participant was a fan of Miami Heat based on a prior survey they'd done and that they didn't explicitly support the magic. So basically half the students were given a gift they'd actually like, the other half given a gift they didn't really want. But then dividing them up again, half the gifts were wrapped neatly, while the other half were slapdash wrapped, you know, not, not a bit sloppy. And after unwrapping these presents, the participants evaluated, evaluated how much they liked their gifts. And they found that those who received a sloppily wrapped gift liked their presents significantly more than those who received a neatly wrapped gift, regardless of whether they got the mug of the team they supported or not. So there you go. So it's probably about managing expectations. And so the researchers actually dived in further to this study and went on to another one with another set of students and asked them to look at an image of either a neatly or sloppily wrapped gift and report their expectations about it prior to what they saw prior to seeing what was actually inside that. And uh, they were told to imagine opening the gift. uh, And then when they opened it, the gift was a pair of earbuds. And finally, after they'd opened it, they had to rate their actual attitudes towards the gift, basically comparing whether it matched their expectations or not. And what the results showed, kind of unsurprisingly, is that expectations were significantly higher for neatly wrapped gifts compared with the sloppily wrapped ones. But after the reveal, participants receiving those neatly wrapped gifts uh, reported that it failed to live up to their expectations. But those who got the badly wrapped gift said it surpassed their expectations. So people are actually using wrapping as a cue to how good the gift will be. Neat wrapping sets the bar for the gift far too high, showing that it will be a great present. Dodgy wrapping, on the other hand, low expectations, probably a bad gift. So if you wrap it dodgily, but it's a good gift, you've uh, burst through their low expectations. I guess this also shows that when you're doing prank gifts and those sorts of things, you've got to wrap it real well to build up those expectations so they can be horribly, horribly disappointed. The researchers, though, for this study didn't stop at two. They went to a third and final experiment to look at the effect uh, of the wrapping based on the relationship between the person giving the gift and the person getting it. And uh, wanted to see whether it mattered whether the person's a close friend or just an acquaintance. And so they surveyed uh, 261 adults in the US, a nationally representative sample, and asked them to imagine being at a party with a secret gift exchange. 
at random, uh, the participants looked at images and imagined receiving either a neatly or sloppily wrapped gift. This time, half of the participants were instructed to imagine that the gift was from a close friend, while the other half believed it came from just an acquaintance. Then the gift was revealed and people were asked to rate it. Now, when it came from a close friend, recipients, recipients liked the sloppily wrapped gift more, just like we've seen previously. But when it came from an acquaintance, recipients preferred it when it was neatly wrapped. Now, this occurs because these participants use the wrapping as a cue to find out how much the gift giver values their relationship. So as an acquaintance, they thought, well, they value my relationship much more because they put much more effort into the wrapping. So look, I think this just comes to the conclusion. If you are wrapping presents for everyone and it's family or close friends, don't stress too much. You're only building up their expectations. But if you are wrapping something for a slightly more distant acquaintance, maybe put the time into it because it's probably going to make it worth your while. All right, we're slowly progressing through some of these Christmas science stories. And when we come back, uh, maybe we'll jump into some food-based Christmas stories. But before we do, we need to know how to make the gravy. So here's Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly there with How to Make Gravy. Great Christmas song indeed. And... uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM, your science on a Sunday. And today we are exploring the science of Christmas because why not? It's uh, the 22nd of December and it's time to do that. Uh, before the break, we were looking at uh, talking about uh, some of the stresses and um, buying presents and car parking and wrapping them. And I just wanted to finish off that with one more present story before we jump into food. And uh, that is hiding presents because hiding presents is a strange little thing we do. And maybe you've hidden something and uh, you can't work out where you've actually hidden it now. I love that moment when you do that. I actually found a present recently uh, for myself. It was an umbrella that uh, my wife had bought me. And I I think she'd just forgotten about it. And it just suddenly appeared one day in the present wrapping cupboard, like the cupboard where we keep all our paper and that sort of thing. I remember talking to her about it. I'm like, there's an umbrella there. She's like, oh, yeah, I think I bought that for you, but I can't remember when. So anyway, now we have a new umbrella. Um, but <laughs> but hiding presents is that strange thing we do uh, and we have to remember ourselves. And look, in essence, the hiding of something is actually not a practical problem. I mean, there's there's plenty of hiding spots around a house and that sort of thing. In reality, it's a social problem because it doesn't matter where you put it, just as long as the eventual recipient doesn't see you put it there and isn't going to find it. So to succeed in this, uh, part of what you need to make sure of is that you're not being observed. And uh, interestingly, we're actually not the only species as humans to navigate uh, the observation thing when we're hiding stuff. Uh, Birds from the crow family uh, do something called caching where they hide uh, food and bits and pieces. And when they do it, they use social cognition, the ability to basically read the minds of others to decide when to hide a piece of food for future consumption. 
They look at others' behaviour, and if they suspect that they've been observed, they'll actually return later and move their cache of food to a new location. Now, some of these birds can hide and then retrieve thousands of items. So they've got a very good memory for where they're hiding these things. And uh, so, you know, for now, uh, just be aware when you're hiding those presents that a crow isn't watching you as you go. Uh, but with that song before, I thought uh, maybe it's time to uh, delve into the world of Christmas food. And uh, look, to start with, uh, I already talked about uh, how when we get stressed, we eat some of those fatty foods and we drink a bit more. And uh, it does add up. Between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, the average Aussie gains about uh, 800 grams to one and a half kilos across that week. And, I mean, look, it's really not surprising, given all the chocolate and cheese, the turkey and ham that we eat uh, from the 25th onwards. And uh, on the 25th itself, we're more likely to consume three times as much food as usual. But the question is, why do we do it? Why do we reach for one more mince pie when we're about to burst? Why do we squeeze in that Christmas pudding? It's because the brain mechanism that makes you hungry is driven by the levels of salts and sugars in your bloodstream. And it's not the same system that makes us stop eating. In fact, if we carried on eating until our blood sugar levels returned to normal, we'd probably explode, as it can take over half an hour for the effects of a meal to reach our bloodstream. So instead what the brain does is it actually uses previous experience to predict when we should stop and makes us feel full at the point when we've eaten just enough. But this neurological system works better for some people than others, uh, partly dependent on our genes, uh, but other factors can interfere with this prediction of when we've had enough. Drinking alcohol, uh, conforming with those around us, boredom, anxiety or excitement, they all add up to overindulgence. And if we think about Christmas Day... All those things are happening on Christmas Day. So, you know, you might uh, be tempted to keep going. Your brain's going to think, yeah, I can keep going too. Look, if you're concerned, just stop a little earlier. Just uh, go for the one plate instead of two. But uh, the other thing, as far as I'm concerned, is look after yourself and just enjoy Christmas Day. That's my tip. But... uh, Speaking of overeating, the one thing that we do need to be aware of is uh, what we actually eat. And there's an old saying, uh, it actually comes from uh, Paracelsus, a 16th century German-Swiss philosopher who brought in a new approach to toxicology, the study of poisons, and wrote, the dose makes the poison. And it's quite a true thing. Now, I'm not talking about... uh, Christmas dinner here. I mean, obviously, if you ate too much Christmas dinner, you would reach a point where you poison yourself. But uh, in essence, what this is saying is uh, that uh, too much is too much, but it varies from thing to thing. And uh, there are a few toxic treats that we are eating at Christmas time. So, uh, you know, you've got to be aware of these things. Now, the most toxic thing you're probably going to eat this Christmas, if you enjoy it, is cyanide. And uh, cyanide comes in marzipan. 
So marzipan is a good source of cyanide. It's the stuff you hear about in all those spy books and murder mystery novels. Uh, but there's no need to throw your cake in the bin because it's only present in very tiny amounts. In fact, you would have to eat 35 kilos of marzipan in one sitting to get a lethal dose of cyanide, at which point it's probably not the cyanide you need to be worried about. Now, this cyanide comes from almonds uh, because marzipan is flavoured with almonds and uh, the chemical inside almonds that contains cyanide is called amygdalin. Now, that can be that's basically a chemical that's uh, broken down by enzymes in the gut to release hydrogen cyanide, which is what's readily absorbed into the blood and transported to cells where it can stop cell respiration in its tracks. So this is why cyanide kills. It actually stops the body being able to generate energy and our cells die rapidly. Now, at this point, it's actually worth pointing out that it's not... Uh, I don't know if you've read any Agatha Christie, but uh, they sniff the thing and they smell some almonds. They're like, ah, it's cyanide. Cyanide smells of almonds. But it's actually the opposite. Almonds smell of cyanide. So there you go. And bitter almonds potentially contain... Uh, contain potentially dangerous levels of amygdalin, uh, but... Uh, so, uh, but sweet almonds contain significantly less. And uh, that's the type we eat are the sweet almonds. And when you dilute these into marzipan even further, look, you got no need to worry about uh, cyanide poisoning. Now, the, uh, the, other, the next thing on the list of potential poisons for this Christmas is nutmeg. Now, I didn't know this, but nutmeg has been used as a recreational high for centuries. Uh, so, you know, that's maybe why eggnog is so good, uh, but not quite, not quite. The amount of nutmeg you get in eggnog is not going to influence you. In fact, you actually need to ingest quite a bit of nutmeg to experience its physiological effects. About one to one and a half grated nutmegs, uh, but the amounts vary between individuals and uh not a recommendation or challenge here, folks. Seriously, don't try this at home. Um, so, look, nutmeg can be a bit of a... Uh, can have some effects on you, but uh, in your mince pie, your Christmas pud, it's low levels in there, so you'll be fine. Um, and, in fact, ingesting large qualities of grated nutmeg is apparently like swallowing sandpaper. The particles are so coarse and scratchy, and uh, this is about the most fun part of the experience. Uh, then takes one to six hours for symptoms to present, and uh, they'll likely include nausea, dilated pupils, and dizziness. There may be hallucinations, both visual and auditory, but they won't necessarily be pleasant. Periods of euphoria are followed by the sensation of impending death, and the effects are so unpleasant that few people return to for seconds. And, uh, in fact, in the literature, there's only one documented case of a nutmeg habit. So... Uh, yeah, not worth it. Uh, there have actually, though, been uh, cases of hospitalisation due to unconsciousness, delirium and tachycardia brought on by ingesting toxic levels of nutmeg. And there's no specific antidote. Uh, so you just have to sit and wait for the days for the effect to wear off. Uh, deaths are rare from nutmeg poisoning, but not unheard of. Uh, but... More rare because vomiting is likely to remove much of the nutmeg and uh, then supportive care in the hospital is often enough for the patient to recover. 
the toxic component of nutmeg is thought to be myristicin, which is a volatile oil that can be metabolized in the body to a compound that resembles amphetamines. Uh, but amphetamine uh, compounds wouldn't account for all the symptoms that we see in nutmeg toxicity, uh, so there might be something on else there. Now, the final thing on the list of potential Christmas poisons is mistletoe. Now, you're supposed to kiss under the mistletoe. Just don't. Just make sure that mistletoe doesn't go into your mouth because the berries of mistletoe contain forotoxin, which has similar effects on the body as digitalis, the heat drug, heart drug that's toxic in surprisingly small amounts. Now, mistletoe poisoning can be successfully uh, treated in the same way as digitalis overdoses, and uh, it's uh, not too bad there. So, look, there are some poisons out there this Christmas, uh, but uh, you can uh, keep an eye on it yourself and look after yourself from there. And, uh, look, just make sure you don't uh, eat a whole nutmeg or go too crazy on the marzipan, and you'll be right. It's probably best to uh, balance out some of those sweets too with uh, some veggies and that sort of thing. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I always make sure we've got some carrots in the fridge for the reindeer as they arrive uh, to feed them as they come through. And uh, interestingly, reindeer uh, are pretty good uh, creatures at uh, staying warm in their cold environment. Uh, they've got their fur coats on and they're ready to stay warm when temperatures go below minus 50 Celsius. But what happens when they're in Australia or when they've been flying around so much they uh, get so hot they need to cool down? Well, some researchers have uh, recently done a study of reindeer and they looked at major blood vessels in their heads and looked at blood flow and brain temperature and uh, tested how the reindeer cooled themselves down. Now, they warmed them up by actually putting them on a specifically designed treadmill for them And uh, it was interesting. At first, the reindeer breathed through their noses. That allowed the cold air around them in the Arctic to cool the blood in their sinuses before sending it on to the rest of their body. So their nose was like a little uh, heat exchange there. Send the air through, cools it down, goes through the rest of their body. But once they started to breathe faster, that was up to 260 breaths a minute, they opened their mouths and panted like dogs, letting the air flow over their tongues to cool that blood. Uh, When their brain temperature reached a critical limit of 39 degrees, the reindeer then switched the blood flow pattern in their noses so that the coolest blood would go to their heads and cool the brain. A similar strategy to what the African antelope does, and they're a distant relative of the reindeer. So there you go. Reindeer keeping cool by regulating the temperature in different ways, breathing through their nose, then panting like a dog, and then finally their body just redirects the blood from their nose in the cool area. So there you are. And uh, speaking of reindeer, an interesting one here too. You know how uh, in that song they teased Rudolph, all those reindeer, because Rudolph had the red nose? Well, some research from the University of Exeter shows that uh, reindeer actually lack the colour-detecting cells that humans use to detect red. And the same applies to orange, which means that uh, not only would reindeer struggle to see a red nose, they'd also miss the carrots that we leave out at Christmas. Yeah, basically, reindeer can't see red light or tell the difference between red, orange and green. 
So, you know, they would not have been able to detect what was going on with Rudolph, although they do have ultraviolet vision. Now, why do they have this? Well, this is so they can see lichen hidden under the snow in the Arctic, and uh, that's their food source there, and also use it to potentially even spot white wolves or other predators because fur absorbs UV light, whereas snow reflects it. So a camouflage white wolf would stand out to reindeer. There you go. Pretty amazing creatures, those reindeer. Not only flying around with a sleigh, but keeping cool and uh, being able to see in UV. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here with Broderick on 2XFM People Powered Radio. We are community radio in Canberra, and you can check us out online at 2XXFM.org.au. You can also find Fuzzy Logic online We've on Twitter at Fuzzy Logic Sci, that's SCI, um, and uh, on Facebook, and uh, our podcasts are downloadable from iTunes. Today on Fuzzy Logic, we are talking about Christmas, and I've been doing some Christmas science and that sort of thing. But uh, let's get into some Christmas maths and statistics. And uh, I found this little article here, I thought it was worth sharing, about uh, why there are so few babies born on Christmas Day. And in fact, if... uh, We look at the least popular birthdays in Australia. December 25th is the least popular, up there at number one. Uh, Second, December 26th, followed by January 1st, and then January 26th and April 25th round out the top five, which is quite interesting, really, indeed. And uh, I think you'll probably understand why as I start uh, to go through this. But then after we get over all the public holidays, the next dates are December 27, December 28, December 24, December 13, and then November 29, quite randomly. (laughs) But uh, let's have a look at why these birth dates are so unpopular. Well, look, part of the reason is, uh, and look, these numbers too can drop between 30 and 40% uh, percent fewer than, in, than the other days of the year. Now, one of the reasons why is uh, there are almost no caesarean births scheduled on that day on public holidays or weekends uh, because doctors, uh, when they can plan for these sorts of things, plan not to do it on the weekend. And uh, about uh, one in three uh, babies are born this way. Now, then if we go to vaginal births... Um, We think about that. Doctors can induce labour, which helps control when babies are born. Now, inductions also typically don't happen when doctors are out of the office trying to uh, celebrate the holidays with family and friends. Not saying that doctors aren't at work, but uh, there's a lot less during the holiday period. Uh, Now, the other reason why births on Christmas and New Year's plummet is that for many people, time management and scheduling is paramount. They actually plan not to have it then. Uh, Interestingly, in England, Wales and New Zealand, uh, much more so than Australia, relatively few babies are born on April 1st. Uh, So that fear of April Fool's Day. In fact, yeah, it's number six in England for least uh, births, number eight in New Zealand. Um, So quite interesting there. The April one features so prominently. And uh, then... uh, 
Yeah, and so, yeah, don't want kids to be bullied. Uh, interestingly, in the US, uh, they're quite similar. They have Christmas Day, New Year's Day, Christmas Eve, uh, January 2nd as the days uh, that are least popular. And number five is July 4th, rounding it out. Uh, whereas over in Ireland, uh, we have Boxing Day, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, and then number four is March 17th which is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. So they're avoiding that one. It's quite amazing to see how this happens with the number of births. But if we happen to look at popular birthdays, well, that's quite a different story. Uh, the most popular birthdays tend to happen in uh, the American, uh, the Northern Hemisphere autumn. Uh, so America's uh, top 10 birth dates all uh, fall within September. Uh, for England and Wales, it's September into October. For Australia, our top birth date is September 17th. Uh, so congratulations if you follow, uh, if you have a birthday then, you are in the most popular spot. Uh, followed by February 12th, September 23rd, April 16th, April 29th. Back to September 24th, October 1st, then March 5th and March 4th, and then April 8th. So quite a random selection of dates there for our most popular ones. Uh, but, yeah, sort of a bit around uh, the spring, a bit around autumn there. Um, quite interesting indeed. Now, unfortunately, there isn't much data for... Um, uh, many other countries across the world um, and research into when people were born is relatively new uh, because you know we didn't necessarily have the birth certificate system that we've had in the past uh, but some countries require um, uh, excuse me sorry uh, but the United Nations does have some data which shows popular birth months actually tend to shift by latitude so countries at higher latitudes like Norway or Russia have peak birthdays in July or August while countries closer to the equator like El Salvador have peak birthdays later in the year like October so very interesting indeed all these changing dates around there all right, we are almost uh, wrapping it up. But uh, while we're in the world of maths, I guess uh, we've done a bit of statistics there. So let's look at an interesting branch of maths called topology and uh, looking at why our Christmas lights always get tangled. Well, it's basically because it's a long cord and they're just prone to tangling in the first place. Uh, several years ago, physicists at the University of California, San Diego, did a study to see how easily cords can get tangled. They put bits of string of various lengths in a cube-shaped box and then mechanically rotated the box so that the strings tumbled around like socks in a dryer. And they repeated the experiment more than 3,400 times. Now, the first knots appeared within seconds. More than 120 different types of knots spontaneously formed spontaneously formed during the experiment. They also found, probably not surprisingly, that the longer the string, the more likely it was to become knotted. So when you've got metres long cord there for your Christmas lights, it's going to get knotted. And the material that the string or cord is made of is important too. A more flexible cord is more likely to tangle than a less flexible cord. Uh, and while the length of the cord matters, so does its diameter. In general, long cords tangle more easily than short ones, but a cord with a large diameter will be less flexible, which reduces the risk of knotting. So in other words, uh, that's uh, why garden hose get, uh, can get tangled, um, 
because it's relatively stiff, but it's also very long compared to its diameter. And when you think about uh, fairy lights, quite long and pretty skinny there, so they're going to get tangled. Now, the additional problem, of course, too, is with lights that Christmas lights are doubly difficult because they've got all these little projections or the lights sticking out of them and the lights get in the way of each other and make it much more difficult to pull one strand through another. That means once you're tangled, it's much harder to disentangle. So look, in reality, it's inevitable that Christmas lights are going to get tangled. They're a long, skinny cord. They've got bits there that are going to help keep them uh, stop them from untangling. What's the solution? Well, the simplest solution is to coil the lights very carefully when putting them away, ideally using something like twist ties to keep them in place, or Martha Stewart actually recommends using cardboard instead of twist ties, like a sheet of cardboard to wind it round. Uh, meanwhile, the mathematician advice, if you already have a hopelessly tangled jumbled cord, then the best way to do it is to find one of the free ends and work your way through from there Eventually, eventually you will succeed. So there you go. That's uh, the tangle of Christmas lights. It's an inevitable thing that uh, you have to face there with those lights. Um, but uh, with a little bit of maths and a little bit of prep, you can probably present, prevent it happening next time. Well, folks, that wraps up our Christmas show here on Fuzzy Logic. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you listening along with us as we have delved into the sciencey world of Christmas. Hopefully, we've given you a few facts uh, that you can take to your Christmas table and uh, share them with others and, uh, you know, help uh, keep that Christmas uh, Christmas spirit going uh, because uh, there's so many different things there, you know, with all the terrible Christmas cracker jokes that are happening on the day at, uh, at least you might be able to share some sciencey facts with folks there. So look, that wraps it up for me. Uh, and this will be my last episode for this year for Fuzzy Logic. So I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next decade. Uh, my name is Broderick and it's been a pleasure you having with us here for our fuzzy logic christmas episode and so make sure you tune again next year for fuzzy logic your science on a sunday